The following was recorded at the 2014 Reformed Forum Theology Conference, held October 10th through 12th, 2014, at Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. For more information, please visit reformedforum.org. I hope you guys had a wonderful uh, breakout session. It's time to uh, begin here. We're welcoming back Dr. Scott Oliphant, uh, now for his second plenary address. We are again so thankful for what we've learned already, and I trust that your breakout sessions were engaging, and I know that you've had some great conversation already. I do want to welcome anyone online who's watching, who's just tuning in on uh, Google Hangouts and YouTube, uh, we're so delighted this seems to be working. It's maybe not as perfect as we'd like, but there are many people following along online. And these uh, recordings will be online and distributed. Um, they already are, but they'll be online in the future if you guys want to share them with others. Um, we have uh, several things lined up. Um, after our session, we're going to have lunch. And then uh, at 1.45 this afternoon, we have a presentation from James Fowler, who will be teaching us and showing us uh, Logos Bible Software. We're going to have our, sec, our uh, second plenary address from Dr. Tipton and our final plenary of the address today at 2.30, and then we'll conclude with our breakout sessions from 4 to 5 p.m. for the day. And We'll be free this evening to uh, spend time together, and I'm sure many of you will be hanging out, and others will be heading home. But we are at the order of the day, as it were. I'm the moderator here right now. So we are welcoming back to the podium Dr. Scott Oliphant to give his plenary address titled Theological Principles from Cornelius Van Til's Common Grace. I must say in this present day, if you ask to name a Van Tilian scholar, who would you identify with the name of Van Til? I could think of no other name first and foremost that you would come up with or at least should come up with than Scott Oliphant. We're very pleased to have him. He is the Professor of Apologetics and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. In Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Last night I mentioned to you many books that he's written. We have many of them available here today, but many that are on Van Til's Doctrine of God, or at least influenced by Van Til's Doctrine of God, and certainly on apologetics, as Van Til sought to apply the truths of the Reformed tradition, and, and therefore we believe the truths of Scripture, to the task of apologetics. You can read more about that in books like Covenantal Apologetics, Reasons for Faith, Doctrine of God Material, and God with Us. The battle belongs to the Lord. Now, Dr. Oliphant would tell you that he came uh, to the Reformed faith and especially to the teachings of Cornelius Van Til through an interesting route. Now, he could tell you the story himself, but I will let you know that at one point in time, he was reading much Van Til on his own. He had no one else who understood it. He had no one else around him to explain it to him, but he was ordering Van Til's books reading it. He even at one point was corresponding with Van Til through letters and I imagine through the telephone at some point. But his wife, one night, was reading some of the material that he was reading. And he thought, this is wonderful. My wife is starting to read Cornelius Van Til. No doubt she's going to come to understand these great truths. And indeed, his wife, I believe, even began to cry. And she was weeping and he said, Look what the Lord has done in her heart to open her eyes to these truths of the Reformed tradition. She has finally come to understand uh, the teaching of this man that's meant so much to me, Dr. Cornelius Van Til. He turned to his wife, and his wife spoke to him and said, Honey, you're in a cult. (laughs) 
that's my creative reimagining of what actually happened. Closer to the truth than other people might want you to believe. We do want to welcome Dr. Scott Oliphant today to teach us about several theological principles that he's noted in Van Til's Common Grace. Common Grace being a book written by Van Til, many of these books are, are, have been or will be published again. And a wonderful, handsome volume from PNR, but also with wonderful explanatory annotations uh, by Dr. William Edgar, did one on Intro to Systematic Theology. Dr. Oliphant's done the Defense of the Faith and will continue to do more. They're, they're working on deals to have many, many more coming in the future. So let's put our hands together. Welcome Dr. Scott Oliphant to teach us once again. Thanks, sir. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I always like to hear that story told by someone else because it's, it's interesting to me. Um, everyone gets it just about right, just about right. It is, it is uh, also sort of um, coincidental, ironic, my wife, who I think is, is watching online, is also in the process of organizing some old photos in our house uh, while I'm gone, and she just uh, sent one to me on my phone, a picture of, of uh, Van Til and me uh, standing next to Van Til Hall at Westminster Seminary. He's got his arm around me, and yeah, so it's kind of perfect timing. Um, when when uh, Camden and I were talking about uh, various things that, that I could do, um, this one came up as a possibility. Now, the theme of our conference is Sons of God, and so the work for you this, uh, this, this afternoon, this morning and this afternoon, is to figure out how this fits into that theme, because I don't know. But um, what, I, what, I said, what I said to, uh, to, to Camden is it might be uh, helpful, interesting, useful uh, for me to present uh, some of the material uh, that I have written uh, as an introduction to... Uh, the new uh, edition that PNR is going to publish in the next four or five months, uh, Van Til's work, Common Grace and the Gospel. Maybe you know that work. It's a collection of his essays. In my view, um, uh, besides defense of the faith, it's the most important thing anyone should read in Van Til's corpus. Um, if you can understand defense of the faith and then Common Grace and the Gospel, you've got Van Til. If you take one to the exclusion of the other, you lack balance, and there are some things there you're not going to get, not going to understand. So when uh, PNR uh, asked me and agreed to, to do this republication, um, I wanted to go through it um, in one sense with new eyes and begin to look at what Van Til is up to in the development of the Reformed Doctrine of Common Grace. The essays included in that volume cover about 25 years of his teaching career. And so he's working at this and moving uh, during his career um, to try to negotiate and understand the doctrine of common grace as has been given in Reformed thought, and particularly as that um, uh, doctrine reached its pinnacle uh, in a controversy in the Christian Reformed Church. And Van Til's very interested in that as well. So as I began to read, um, certain things uh, came to light um, in what Van Til is saying. Uh, things that I think, in, in my view, are, are, are fundamental and of fundamental importance, and I think these are things that are, have been ignored in Reformed thinkers. Um, I think um, that in tearing away the tares of Thomism, uh, there's no place that is needed uh, so much in tearing away those tears than in doctrine of God and theology proper. 
And uh, I found this out really when I uh, was asked uh, by Dr. Gaffin a decade, more than a decade ago, to, to teach the Doctrine of God class at Westminster Seminary. And so when you're asked to do that, and it was kind of an urgent situation, uh, so I had to get lecture notes prepared fairly quickly. And so I began to read everything I get my hands on in Reformed thinking on Doctrine of God. Much of it was unsatisfactory. And so I began to ask myself, what's going on here? What's the problem? And so when I began to read, then again, Van Til and the way he thinks about it, I thought, well, here's the problem. Um, Van Til wasn't known or wasn't read by some of these people. So what I want to offer you um, this morning is uh, just a short kind of summary of that introduction to Common Grace in the Gospel that should be published um, in, in uh, January or February. You're, you're the first audience to, to get this um, so it's new material in that sense, but I hope you'll see as we move along that it's, that it's not new to Van Til. So I've, I've given you, um, thanks to um, Camden and Erica for running off those quotations, I've given those to you because some of them are a little bit lengthy and I want you to be able to follow along in the logic of the argument the way that I'm, I'm trying to develop it. Uh, and then maybe uh, after, the, uh, after I'm through here, if you have questions, we can begin uh, to talk about those. So throughout Van Til's collection of essays on common grace, uh, he, he wants to provide, he says, a third way to think about the common grace problem. So he says, in that quotation you have, going off to the right by denying common grace, as with Huxima, that's my uh, insertion there, or going off to the left by affirming a theory of common grace patterned after the natural theology of Rome, as in some of Kuyper's formulations, is to fail to this extent to challenge the wisdom of the world. The third way, then, that Van Til proposes is a way that goes neither to the left nor to the right in establishing the biblical doctrine of common grace. So, unwilling to move to the right, he will not deny common grace as Huxima had done. Such a denial, he makes clear, is unbiblical. And it presupposes an improper application of the rules of thinking. That's going to be an important point. Those who deny common grace, Van Til says, think abstractly and deductively. Those are his words. So that certain truths of Scripture are squeezed out because they cannot fit the constraints of abstract reasoning. So Van Til rejects a move to the right which is a rejection of common grace. The main point to keep in mind with respect to the rejection of the doctrine of common grace is that it is based on an illegitimate, logical deduction from the truth of God's eternal decree, a decree both to elect a people and to pass over others. Those deductions, Van Til argues, deal with abstractions, And therefore, because of that, they fail to be biblically concrete. Not only so, but Van Til also argues they undermine a biblical philosophy of history, which is where you see in Van Til's essays on common grace the strong Vossian influence, his revered professor as he referred to him. It's this practice of biblically illegitimate deductions that Van Til is concerned to address, and he addresses it with deep biblical content in each of the essays of that book. 
So he won't move to the right, and neither will his third way move to the left. It will not allow for a notion of neutral concepts or activities as you have in the theology of Rome, some of which you also find in Abraham Kuyper. He won't move in that direction because, he argues, if there is this neutrality, then there cannot be the challenge of Christianity offered in those places because they are, in fact, religiously neutral. It presupposes that rebellion against God is only partial. There are areas of our thinking in which we are not in rebellion against Him. There can be no view of common grace in which the Christian and non-Christian have certain concepts and ideas which are at root in common. This kind of commonality, Van Til says, can be no part of common grace because if that were the case, we could not challenge unbelief in those very areas of thinking and living. More importantly, he says, that kind of idea does not give due credit to the biblical and Reformed understanding of the antithesis. So in light of these assessments of Van Til's in developing a third way, He uses, utilizes, employs three different ideas, each of which entails the other two. So, does this mean I'm perspectival? Well, you be the the judge. But the point here is that there are three ideas that all entail each other. When you're speaking of one, you're speaking of the other two. And the first one that Van Til employs he calls fearless anthropomorphism. Everything that he says about common grace, including its relationship to God's decree and our total depravity, as well as the knotty problems surrounding God's will of decree and His will of command, includes and presupposes the idea of a fearless anthropomorphism. This is the case because the first thing that has to be understood in any discussion of common grace is the mystery that obtains by virtue of God's character and God's relationship to creation. When God created man, He determined to create man in His image. That determination included the fact that man would be responsible for and in history due to his covenant relationship to God. Man would choose... And those choices would influence, for better or for worse, the flow of history and man's relationship to God. Those choices would even influence God's disposition toward man. So that God would be, in a real but penultimate sense, penultimate sense, reacting to our choices. None of this, though, as Van Til makes clear, can be understood as denying or subverting or undermining or eliminating in any way the fact of God's unconditional and eternal decree, by which He determines and exhaustively controls whatsoever comes to pass. God works all things by the counsel of His own will, and there's nothing on which God depends in order to determine and carry out His sovereign plan. That plan ultimately and immutably determines every detail of history and of eternity future. So when Van Til encourages fearless anthropomorphism, he's not using that phrase in a vacuum. The notion itself, as he reminds us, must be understood within the context of a Reformed doctrine of God 
and of God's covenant with man. So he says, a fearless anthropomorphism based on the doctrine of the ontological trinity rather than abstract reasoning on the basis of a metaphysical and epistemological correlativism should control our concepts all along the line. All right, that's one of those statements, if we had time, we could spend a couple of hours on. It's so theologically packed and so absolutely correct. But notice it. Fearless anthropomorphism based on the doctrine of the ontological trinity, the ah, say, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's based on that, rather than abstract reasoning on the basis of a metaphysical and epistemological correlativism. In other words, creator needs creature needs creator. When God decided to create, he lost his sovereignty, gave it up, he minimized it, whatever theological term you want to use, and now creation and God are correlative in a metaphysical sense. Van Til says, absolutely not. That's anything but reformed. So the fearless anthropomorphism of which Van Til speaks has its foundation in the ontological trinity. We can only be properly and fearlessly anthropomorphic if we first understand the aseity of the triune God. Before there was creation, there was God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who was not constrained by time, by space, or by anything at all in order to be eternally and immutably who He is. When God created, he did not cease to be ase. Creation does not require a middle knowledge of God in which he could not carry out his plan without first viewing our autonomous choices in order then to decide what circumstances to create. Again, that's a standard, probably the standard view in evangelical Christianity. It is anathema to Reformed thinking. So it's important for us to see that with all of the right and proper insistence on the the aseity of God, which you find in every Reformed writer, this insistence on being fearlessly anthropomorphic is virtually absent in the history of theology proper. There have been many, I think too many, who call themselves Reformed or some cases Augustinian, but who have not been careful to insist on a fearless anthropomorphism. The result, perhaps unintended, has been a view of God that is much too abstract and aloof, too far removed from biblical and theological language and truth. A view of God that is not concrete and does not include a robust notion of limiting concepts. So I give you a few examples of this tendency in the history of theology, and believe me, you could write a book on these examples, just listing them. So at the beginning of his work on the Trinity, Augustine says, Scripture has borrowed many things from the spiritual creature, whereby to signify that which indeed is not so, but must needs so be said, as for instance, I the Lord thy God am a jealous God. Now, we've got to think carefully about what Augustine says here. Is it proper and biblically warranted to say that when Scripture says God is jealous, that it is, quote, not so, but must needs be said? Do we really want to affirm that Scripture teaches that which is really not so, or not in conformity with the way things really are, or not the case after all? What would this view do toward a high view of Scripture. 
if we think in the way Augustine encourages here, can we consistently take Scripture seriously when it speaks about God? How, for example, might you go about preaching? Exodus 20, verse 5. Would the minister stand up before his congregation and say, Thus saith the Lord, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, Scripture must needs speak this way, but it is not so. (laughs) The Lord is not a jealous God. He's simply borrowing something from the creature in order to communicate and accommodate Himself to you. I would hope a minister who uttered such things in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church would have a battle on his hands. Thomas Aquinas, whose doctrine of God can can in places be consistent with some of that which was emphasized during the time of the Reformation, although I'm absolutely convinced that people have said those things much better than Thomas ever did, but some of it is consistent. Thomas stumbled as his mentor Augustine had done. So he says, you've got the quote, Since therefore God is outside the whole order of creation, and all creatures are ordered to Him and not conversely, it is manifest that creatures are really related to God Himself, whereas in God there is no real relation to creatures, but a relation only in idea, inasmuch as creatures are referred to Him. Thus, there is nothing to prevent these names which import relation to the creature from being predicated of God temporally, not by reason of any change in him, but by reason of the change of the creature. As a column is on the right of an animal without change in itself, but by change in the animal. Stephen Charnock, almost verbatim, saying the same thing. Now, without detailing the medieval notion of a real relation, which can be uh, complex, we can see that in the illustration Thomas gives, we have the central focus of his assertion. The relationship that creatures have to God and God to us is analogous to the relationship that a column has to an animal. The column is on the right of the animal because of the movement or change in the animal and not by virtue of any change in the column. In other words, because God is immutable, which he is, Thomas reasoned abstractly to conclude that God's relationship to creatures needs significant qualification such that the creature is really related to God, but not God to the creature. The latter relationship can only be ideal. And as ideal, such a relation does not really exist, as most medieval scholars recognize, but is only conceptual. So the question can be broached here again. What might we think of a preacher who stands before his congregation and says, Dear friends, we know that God is not really but only ideally related to us. Our relation to Him is only in our minds. But fear not, the truth is that we are really related to Him. But He's not really related to you. This view is plagued with abstraction and fails to be fearlessly anthropomorphic. Abstract and misleading views like this could be multiplied. Here is how Paul Helm, another Calvinistic philosopher, some of you may have seen this. Paul and I have had a little back and forth on it. I'm still not convinced. Here's how Paul Helm describes what he takes to be Calvin's view of a similar matter. In discussing the atonement and its relationship to God's disposition toward us, Helm says, the truth about atonement, about reconciliation to God, has to be represented to us as if it implied a change in God. And so, an inconsistency, an apparent contradiction in His actions towards us. But in fact, there is no change in God, 
He loves us from eternity. There is, however, a change in us, a change that occurs as by faith Christ's work is appropriated. The change is not from wrath to grace, but from our belief that we are under wrath to our belief that we are under grace. So insistent is Helm on mere conceptuality of God's relation to creation that he says this about the incarnation. He says, perhaps Calvin's view amounts to this. In the incarnation, there is uniquely powerful and loving and gracious focusing of the divine nature upon human nature rather than a transfer of the Son of God to a spatio-temporal location. This focusing makes it possible for us to say that God the Son is so present with human nature that there is a union of natures in Jesus Christ. Have you ever read any Reformed confession that even remotely approaches such language? No, sir, me either. A gracious focusing of the divine nature upon human nature. Is that what we believe and confess about the Incarnation? This view is fraught with abstract thinking and is the antithesis of fearless anthropomorphic thinking. With respect to God's wrath and His grace, Helm says that Calvin's view is that we are to affirm, given that there's no change in God, that the movement from wrath to grace is purely doxastic. It has to do only with our belief. We move from our belief that we're under wrath to our belief that we're under grace. We're all the while to recognize that such beliefs do not comport with the way things really are. So imagine a preacher preaching on Ephesians 2, 1 to 8. Yes, says Paul, you were children of wrath. And yes, dear friends, God has by grace made you alive in Christ. But surely you recognize that if you are one of God's elect, you weren't really under wrath. His wrath is a mere concept that you're meant to believe. What Scripture is teaching you here is not the way things really are with respect to God. It's teaching you what you must believe about God, even though it's not the case. And in spite of the way things really are, you must believe that if you were in Christ, you have moved from wrath to grace. But make no mistake, you really haven't. Because God cannot change. All that has really changed is not God's disposition toward you, but your beliefs. And those beliefs which Scripture itself encourages... We're not true to the way God really is toward you. How's that for a sermon? How long would a preacher last in an Orthodox church who began to preach that way? Lastly, it seems even my theological hero, Herman Bovink, was reticent at places. At places. This is an exception and not the rule in Bovink. But he was reticent to be fearlessly anthropomorphic. So he says, we can almost never tell why God willed one thing rather than another and are therefore compelled to believe that he could just as well have willed one thing as another. But in God, there actually is no such thing as choice, inasmuch as it always presupposes uncertainty, doubt, and deliberation. This point, too, utterly skews the clear teaching of Scripture. Are we meant to think that when Scripture says that God chose us before the foundation of the world, that what it really means is that there was no such choice in God? Or is it the case, as Bavink and others want to say, that God's willing of Himself is identical with His willing of His creatures? This is abstract reasoning based on deductions from truths, from truths that I think are truths that I want to affirm. Now, these quotations, and I could have given you more, get to the heart of Van Til's concern in his articulation of common grace. 
how exactly are we to think about the apparent contradictions, as he wants to call them, that face us in Scripture, especially as those relate to God's character, to His relation to creation, and to His general grace to all mankind? We have to ask why these solid, orthodox, and brilliant theologians want to speak in such terms about God. The reason, at least in part, is that in each of the examples cited, these theologians failed to be fearlessly anthropomorphic. They committed themselves, even if inadvertently, to abstract thinking. They rightly affirm God's aseity and attributes that flow from God's aseity, His eternity, His infinity, His immutability. They are right to hold these and to resist any temptation to let them go but then they begin systematically and abstractly to deduce logically from the principle, say, of aseity or immutability without being controlled, first of all, by the data of Scripture. And this becomes their downfall as they begin to express things about God which are not the case. To deduce from God's aseity or God's simplicity that God does not choose or that creation brings about not real, but an ideal relation, so that God is not really related to us, is to choose for abstract, unbiblical deduction over clear, biblical assertion, and is to fail to be fearlessly anthropomorphic. All right, let me just say parenthetically, this is one of the reasons I think It's not the only reason, there are others, but this is one of the reasons I think why many in biblical studies don't want to take systematic theology seriously because what they see is an imposition, a philosophical imposition of concepts onto things that are affirmed in Scripture. And you lose your ability to speak biblically when you do that. Again, it's not the only reason, but we have, even in the Reformed tradition, I think, fail to be fearlessly anthropomorphic. And so much of systematic theology that's done, especially in theology proper, needs a complete revision and rewrite. Because the doctrine of common grace entails the mystery of God's dealings with man, this is in part the burden of Van Til's discussion throughout his collection of essays. Often Van Til's genius shines brightest in a statement or two. So here it is. You have it there. Applying this to the case in hand, we would say that we are entitled and compelled, biblically and theologically, to use anthropomorphism not apologetically, that is, not saying, I'm sorry, I have to do this, but fearlessly. Notice what he says here. We need not fear to say that God's attitude has changed with respect to mankind. We know well enough that God in himself is changeless. Both things must be said. How do we do it? Both things have to be affirmed. How do we do it? So the genius of Van Til, and he got, he got this from Bovink and Kuyper. He just developed it more. The genius of Van Til is that it allows him to affirm biblical truth, to affirm that truth in the context of what Scripture has to say, rather than as an abstract deduction from a philosophical principle of a seity or immutability or eternity or something like that. And that leads to the second theme in Van Til's Common Grace Collection. Now again, remember they entail each other. So this theme of concrete thinking is already contained in what Van Til means by being fearlessly 
anthropomorphic. So the first thing to say is a reiteration of what we've already said, is that when Van Til urges concrete thinking, he is, in effect, urging biblical thinking. Conversely, abstract thinking is thinking that is inconsistent with the emphases and teaching of Scripture. And Scripture, we have to remember, is fearlessly anthropomorphic. So Van Til says, to think analogically, to be fearlessly anthropomorphic, is to think concretely. For it is to take all the factors of revelation into consideration simultaneously. Implied in a method that takes revelation as epistemologically foundational is a proper view of thinking. So the first general principle with respect to Van Til's emphasis on concrete thinking is that it requires a proper view and use of the laws of thought. This is one central area where abstract thinking is dangerous, even deadly, with respect to theological orthodoxy. Van Til's primary concern in this regard especially as it touches on the issues surrounding the doctrine of common grace, has to do with the denial of the historical that ensues when abstract thinking is dominant. We don't have time to go into it here, but this is where I think Voss impacted Van Til the most. He sees in abstract thinking a denial of the historical, and he can't stand it. He knows better. So Van Til says, It is well to observe in this connection that a natural concomitant of the failure to to distinguish between a a Christian and a non-Christian foundation for true logic is the denial of the genuine significance of the historical. Given the belief in a self-sufficient God, the idea of temporal creation and genuine historical development is absurd. So says the non-believer. And so says the Arminian, using the neutral application of the syllogism. Calvinism, we are told, makes history to be a puppet dance. The Arminian has not seen the necessity of challenging the idea of a neutral logic. He reasons abstractly, as all non-believing philosophy does. The Arminian, therefore, also rejects the Reformed conception of history. He thinks of it as he thinks of philosophical determinism. In other words, to reason abstractly is, for example to take one truth, the truth of God's unconditional election, and to deduce from such a truth that history is meaningless because predetermined. Or to use another example, abstract reasoning would deduce that God's unconditional decree negates real human responsibility. Abstract reasoning is inherently non-historical and therefore unbiblical. It moves the Arminian as it does the unbeliever, as well as the denier of common grace, toward a conclusion that negates Scripture's view of man and of history. And this is just to say that concrete thinking takes seriously the self-sufficiency and meticulous sovereignty of God, even while, at the same time, It affirms the meaningful progress of history and the real, meaningful, contingent, responsible choices of man. See the Westminster Confession, chapter 3. Deduction can only be licit within the confines of biblical truth. 
So when the Westminster Confession speaks of good and necessary consequence, both things must be in place for such consequences to be biblical. Not simply that they be necessary, but they must be good. And good means, in this case, within the bounds and context of biblical teaching. A necessary consequence is not sufficient, nor is a good consequence sufficient unto itself. The consequence must be good and necessary. Paul deals with this, doesn't he, in Romans 9. He recognizes what he's saying about the doctrine of election might move some to deduce that because God wills it and it will necessarily happen, that it's God's fault. That's the deduction. So Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or who is this his will? That's the deduction. But it's not a good consequence, is it? Because Paul answers that question with a question. Who do you think you are to answer back to God? In other words, as Calvin put it, when Scripture shuts its sacred mouth, let the Christian desist from inquiry. That's Paul's point. Fearless anthropomorphism, concrete thinking, not abstract, which takes us to the next entailment, limiting concepts. Understanding what Van Til means by limiting concept is central to understanding all of his thought, really, and his work on common grace. But it was important, I thought, for us not to move to an explanation of this idea without first fleshing out what we mean by fearless anthropomorphism and concrete thinking. Limiting concepts, that idea entails both of the others. So we need to initially recognize what a Christian version of limiting concepts is. According to Van Til, he says, it is over against this post-Kantian view of the limiting concept, which we don't have to get into now, but some of you will know what that means, that the writer speaks of a Christian limiting concept. This enables him, he thinks, to set off a truly biblical concept of mystery based on the God of Scripture, who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all. From the non-Christian, in particular from the modern philosophical concept of mystery. In the former case, there is an intelligible, though not an exhaustive, intellectually penetrable basis for human experience. In the latter case, man has no intelligible basis for his experience and, what is worse, insults the Christ who came to bring him light and life. The term limiting concept, as used by Van Til, is a term that helps him to explain a biblical concept of mystery based on the God of Scripture. Not only so, but to employ the non-Christian notion of limiting concept and thus of mystery destroys any basis at all for understanding human experience. The controlling principle embedded in the Christian notion of a limiting concept, as Van Til uses it, is that God's revelation gives us truths, essential and basic truths, that the Christian will not be able to produce or affirm solely by means of our basic rules of thought. The means by which we affirm what we do is through God's own infallible and inerrant revelation to us. So, Van Til says, the various teachings of Scripture 
are not related to one another in the way that syllogisms of a series are related. The system of truth of Scripture presupposes the existence of the internally, eternally, self-coherent triune God who reveals Himself to man with unqualified authority. As Van Til will make clear, especially as he has in mind Calvin's response to Piggyus, the Arminian objection to much of Reformed theology can be easily stated in a syllogism. Van Til says, Piggyus knows how to employ a well-turned syllogism. There's no escaping the force of his objection. If God is the ultimate cause back of whatsoever comes to pass, Piggyus can, on his basis, on his basis, rightly insist that God is the cause of sin. Not only so, but, says Van Til, from the point of view of a non-Christian logic, the Reformed faith can be bowled over by means of a single syllogism. I'm going to read it again because it's important. From the point of view of a non-Christian logic, the Reformed faith can be bowled over by means of a single syllogism. In other words, logic must take its proper place when it comes to biblical truth. Syllogisms are not solely the font of truth. God's revelation is. And syllogisms must be contained and constrained within the truth of God. This is why, all right, a parenthesis. This is why last night I wanted to say what I want to say again. If you base your theology, first of all, foundationally, on your ability to think and to reason, and on the laws of thought, you will go wrong. And you will have difficulty affirming basic biblical truths. You can't even make your initial confession that Jesus Christ is Lord a meaningful confession if by that you mean only the laws of logic determine what I mean by Jesus Christ and what I mean by Lord can't do it. So the basic Christian confession cannot be constrained by a syllogism. Arminianism is rampant throughout Christendom because people have yet to learn that the life of the mind is to be subject to the revelation of God. That's the problem, and it's serious, and Van Til gets it. So it ought to be obvious that only Reformed theology, confessing as it does God's absolute independence and sovereignty, requires the notion of limiting concepts. A theology that maps the teaching of Scripture according to the standard laws of thinking will have no puzzle to solve. The mind of man is fully capable, so it is thought, of putting all these apparent conundrums neatly together. In piecing together all the pieces of the puzzle by way of reason, however, the sovereign majesty of God is minimized, if not denied, and the mind of man is highly exalted to the point of idolatry. So says Van Til, only those who are seriously concerned with interpreting the whole of history in terms of the counsel of God can be puzzled by the question, of that which is common between believer and unbeliever. This is an absolutely fascinating, penetrating point. Don't miss it. For both the Roman Catholic and the Arminian, it is a foregone conclusion that there are large areas of life on which the believer and unbeliever agree 
without any difference. Only he who is committed to the basic absolute of God's counsel can and will be puzzled by the meaning of the relative. Once you affirm the sovereignty of God and the aseity of God, and everything that that means biblically, the puzzle is contingency, the relative, the relationship. How can this be? In an Arminian construal, in a philosophical construal, there's no puzzle. They've solved it. But the God that they've solved it with is not the God of Holy Scripture. For Arminianism, there is no absolute counsel of God. All is relative to man's free and would-be autonomous decision. For Reformed theology, we posit the absolute counsel of God as a limiting concept requiring, as it does, the relative of the historical process. Again, check Westminster Confession 3, especially 2 and 3. And this is an all-important point. Given creation, given creation, limiting concepts, in order properly and biblically to be understood, require each other. They cannot be understood in isolation. So also for common grace. If one thinks that given God's eternal and unconditional decree of election and reprobation, common grace cannot obtain, then one is attempting to understand God's activity in history only in terms that logically flow, logically and deductively flow from that eternal decree. So there are no limiting concepts because God's decree in eternity is the only determiner of what happens in history. There can be no wrath in history for those chosen in eternity and no grace in history for those not chosen in eternity. All there can be are your beliefs about such things. But Scripture clearly urges us in a different direction. Those who were by nature children of wrath, Paul says to the Ephesians, were the very ones whom God made alive in Christ. So there was a time in history where they were both under wrath even as they were the eternally elect of God. Or to put it in Calvin's words, He loved us even while He hated us. So the electing purpose of God is a limiting concept, entailing as it does the transition of God's disposition toward us from wrath to grace in history. So also the reprobate in God's decree from before the foundation of the world requires the limiting concept of His goodness to all and the good gifts of rain and sunshine over all, even as they reject the gospel and thus further the final and eschatological differentiation taking place in history. Finally then, to be fearlessly anthropomorphic, to think concretely, to recognize the necessity of limiting concepts is to affirm that God has covenantally condescended. He has come down to and in creation. But in no way did that condescension at any point in history detract from His full and majestic deity. The Son did not give up His deity in order to be man. The glorious truth of the gospel is that He remained who He is even while He became man for us and for our salvation. Without the notion of a limiting concept, in other words, not only is common grace not given its due biblical weight, 
But the gospel itself is sufficiently muted of its glory and grace. So says Van Til, so far from being a system of philosophical determinism that stultifies human knowledge and responsibility, the Reformed faith being unreservedly based on biblical exegesis is alone able to deliver to men the unadulterated joy of the gospel as it is in the Christ of scriptures. Let's pray. Grant us, we ask our God, a biblical understanding as you have revealed yourself of who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us as we read your word to recognize the glorious mystery in your own character, the depth of the riches of your wisdom and knowledge, to affirm that your ways are past finding out, that your judgments are inscrutable, even while we affirm that you have come down in Christ climactically to deliver us. Give us that wisdom, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Oliphant. I think we would all agree it was a powerful message and one that is uh, well taken as we, we come to understand better uh, our own God and how He has condescended to us, first to make Himself known, but also condescended to us climactically and powerfully in redeeming us, bringing, to, uh, bringing us to salvation. Uh, we thank you, Dr. Oliphant, for your addresses and for the breakout session. This has been a wonderful encouragement to us. We're at this point are going to be taking a break for lunch. Uh, we'll be uh, breaking until about 1.30 p.m. At that point, I encourage you to, to get any coffee and, and uh, get caffeinated and ready, ready to come back up here for our demonstration at 1.45. Uh, James Fowler will be bringing to us a demonstration of Logos Bible software. I know many of us here use it. I use it every single day. Uh, it's a wonderful program and a wonderful uh, tool for the pastor and the layperson who would like to know his or her Bible much better. So I encourage you, come back here at 145 promptly, and we'll have a, a great lesson and presentation there. Uh, immediately following that, we will uh, close up our screen and, and our projector and uh, enter into our final plenary address of the day by Lane Tipton, Redemptive History, Merit, and the sons of God addressing the uh, republication issues and offering a way forward uh, on understanding what it means to be a son of God in this regard. After that, we'll have our final breakout sessions, and that will be our day. So let's. Uh, let, why don't I give thanks for the food and ask that the Lord bless the food, and we'll head our way on down to the uh, fellowship uh, uh, this evening. So why don't we stand and pray? You don't mind. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for bringing us together. We do thank You for the food that uh, is waiting uh, below. Uh, we ask, Lord, that You would bless this food now to our use. We give You thanks for all that You've given to us, that You give us our daily bread, but also that You feed us with the very Word of God. Lord, we pray that You would continue to work among us, that You would keep us healthy, that You would uh, bless us as Your children. We pray now that You would bless this food, and we give You thanks for the food that's before us and all the hands that have prepared it and brought it to us. For in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. I'm dismissed.